Well, it is my privilege to come and conclude our conference together around the topic of suffering and to, first of all, express my thanks to you for just uh, your prayers for us and uh, hearts and all of this. It's been a joy to see the many servants ministering to the body here and the collective encouragement. I think throughout this week, it has been a sweet privilege to minister and labor alongside of you and to see the riches of your gifts on display, ministering to one another. And I know, I'm sure in your heart, you have been ministered to by the scriptures just as I have. I've been sitting there listening to the word preached by each one of my dear friends ministering to us. I, first of all, couldn't imagine a greater group of men to to call co-laborers and friends in the ministry, men who are shepherding my own soul. The danger was the longer I was sitting there, the more I was adding to my notes. Like even the last hour, Lance was saying things. I'd like, okay, I got to slip a few more in here. So uh, it was just a joy to to be ministered to. We um, unexpectedly, uh, Matthias Boldain had come into the country, and I'm like, Matthias, you got to come minister to us. So. I gave up one of my spots so he could minister to us, and uh, which only added more anticipation for me. It's like, okay, I have to cram more in. So um, no clocks, no times. We'll just see how long this goes, right? <laughs> well, it's a, a sweet joy again, as I said. I was thinking about this one phrase, a, a scriptural phrase as a star that, that just kept ringing in my ears as... Lance was teaching, as the guys were teaching yesterday, and even as Eric began this conference on Friday, the phrase, death, where is thy sting? Let's think about that, because in regards to suffering, the believer heads into suffering knowing that there is no sting of death, so there is an ultimate hope. The unbeliever heads into death and experiences death and they have no hope and there is despair. Why would God allow suffering? Why would he allow for us to face difficulties? Because you and I who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have believed the gospel of God, are uniquely prepared to face death head on and to overcome. Because our Lord has overcome. Our Lord has conquered death. He has risen from the dead. And all of those who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those who have faith in Christ are with him, will be raised up with him on the last day, will be part of that heavenly chorus giving praise, and that fills every one of us with joy and anticipation and a unique kind of courage to press through the difficulties press through the pressures. As I begin to think about this, there is something unique that God does with us. Yes, he's preparing us for the days to come. He's preparing us for the heavenly realities that we are going to experience. But he's also using us as light in this dark world. He's using us as a testimony to give glory to him. He is drawing attention to a lost world of the marvelous work of the gospel. He's using our testimony 
to give grand demonstration to his power on display in our lives. And he uses the difficulties of life and the pressures of life to uniquely equip us to demonstrate the riches of Christ's glory. That we have hope. We have faith. We have an anticipation of the riches and the glories to come. And so we're never despairing and overwhelmed. We're never, though perplexed and crushed, we are not distraught. We are not hopeless. We're overcoming. When I think about this in regards to our Christian life, suffering starts as this private, personal difficulty which moves to a public demonstration of the riches of God's glory. If we think about all the categories of suffering that we've looked at over this conference time, we've seen suffering in many different ways. We've looked at suffering in the midst of our trials. We looked at suffering when if God would strip us away and take everything away from us, our possessions, our, our, our family members even, even our own health, if he took everything away from us in the midst of trials, we've seen suffering and, and in the midst of that, how God shapes the heart and directs us. We've seen suffering in the face of loss, loss of loved ones, particularly We've seen suffering in the face of a faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured and overcame all things so that when we lose hope and we despair, we can look to the Lord Jesus Christ and he is our faithful high priest. He is our example. We've seen suffering in the pursuit of righteousness and holiness. We've seen suffering in all of these different categories and now we move from the private practice of suffering before the Lord to the public demonstration which would be suffering in persecution. God was working in our own hearts and he was shaping us privately and he's drawing our faith to, to grow and mature and he's using the very difficulties of life to do that. He's going to do that in order to put himself on display and the way he puts himself on display is through our own personal public persecution. A godless age that has no hope that wants to squash the Christian faith and the hope that comes through Jesus Christ is opposed to the message of God and it's you and I who are being comforted by the truth of God's word in our affliction that give glory to God in the midst of public persecution. In the midst of that season of difficulty. This morning I want to conclude the conference with an exhortation for you to rejoice when you suffer for righteousness. Because as you demonstrate a hope in God, there is a godless ideology that wants to crush that, to wants to take away your hope, to cause you not to speak up about it, to cause you to be despairing so as to put out your light. But it is you facing death, in faith, that gives the glory to the gospel and the glory to Christ. Gives us strength. It's clear, thinking about this in regards to America, we've lived in a season of prosperity for a long time in America. We've enjoyed freedoms of worship. We've enjoyed prosperity. 
The average American lives so much better than the rest of the world. You doubt that, just go on a trip around the world. Go to a third world country, go overseas, go visit a missionary, spend time in the average worship service and you recognize we are lavished with riches here. We've enjoyed academic development, we've enjoyed freedoms, we've enjoyed so many things. And it's true that while we've enjoyed all these blessings over the last 50 years, and in particularly the last 15 years, our society has significantly changed and there is an open hostility. As an older generation passes away and new generation comes, a new generation which has forgotten God, there is a drift away from the, the Christian restraints that would be on society and there is more and more a desire for an independent freedom in the heart of man. It used to be unthinkable, for example, to think about divorce. Now is this fairly commonplace. No more restraints from a culture. And the culture is becoming more and more licentious. There's no longer a voice to speak against the liberal, licentious values of the heart, the natural heart of man. And as a result, people do evil and encourage others to do evil also. And as they move on, what becomes hostile to this culture is the truth of God's word. The values that we have gleaned from the gospel, values that we have gleaned from God's self-disclosure through his word, That becomes a hated message, a message that is an obstacle to this godless world, and therefore we become targets. The temptation for us in the midst of that, as we start to feel this hostility that comes against us, the temptation from our hearts is to doubt, is it really worth it to stand up here? Is it really worth it to preach and take a bold stand? Is it really worth it to communicate this message knowing if I say this thing, it is going to produce open hostility towards me? And I would tell you, it is in the face of suffering that we find the courage to speak up in the midst of that. Because you and I know how to face suffering and face it with hope and face it with courage and face it with anticipation of the glories to come. In fact, you and I, who have believed in the gospel of Christ, can face suffering with rejoicing, and we must. We must do it. Because if we don't, this godless age will lead to destruction apart from any hope lead to demise of many. There's this clear ideological clash coming, and there's a great suffering for God's people coming because the darkness hates the light. It hates the truth of God. And I am not saying this to be a fear monger, as if uh, I want to scare you into something. I am saying this because this is what our Lord taught. It's nothing new to me. Just many generations later, yet saying the same thing that the Lord Jesus Christ himself said. Just to kind of begin our thoughts, start in Matthew chapter 5. Eventually we're going to get to 1 Peter, but right now we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount 
says these words in the introductory words. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records this as the first sermon in Jesus' uh, proclamation in his ministry here. This is likely in the middle of his earthly ministry that he gave this sermon. But Matthew records it first so as to demonstrate the uniqueness of the Messiah's message. And Jesus says this in the Beatitudes, starting in verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As Jesus lays this out, he says, they're going to say all kinds of evil against you. They're going to slander you. They're going to insult you. They're going to throw evil accusations against you. There will be libel. There will be defamation. They will seek to slander you and destroy your character because that is what they did to me. They will do this on account of me. His message was rejected. We won't be surprised if our message is rejected. His message faced hostility. So would ours. Anyone who's walking in the darkness is going to be hostile to the things of God. Anyone who's walking in unrighteousness is only going to find it difficult to hear the truth. And when we are presenting the truth, walking in the ways of God... There should be then within our own hearts an expectation that persecution will come. A kind of persecution that is the result of righteousness, the pursuing of righteousness. Shouldn't be surprised by it. Peter later say that in 1 Peter 5, this comes because there's an adversary, the devil, who is roaming about. He's seeking someone to devour We're living in this hostile age that is opposed to the truth and it is, has no appetite to think deeply, no appetite to look heavenly, no appetite to rest upon God's timing for things. It wants satisfaction for its desires now. It wants self-focus for us to come and to minister the truth and direct people to righteousness is difficult. And after I often pondered this in the midst of that thought, where are the courageous? And what would it take for one to be courageous in this time? How are we going to stand? How are we going to be prepared for such hostility, such opposition? What would we have to do to be prepared for that? Who will have courage? Who will have resolve? Who will be the ones who endure through the seasons of suffering so that they come through it and have matured and stood strong? Who will be able to resist evil and be bold for righteousness? And as I thought about that, I recognize that if I'm going to be able to stand publicly for righteousness, it has to start privately winning the war and suffering. Suffering for righteousness, suffering loss, 
suffering difficulty. In each one of those private matters of personal suffering, I am in those moments gaining courage and gaining confidence and gaining strength so that when the public stand comes, it's going to be strong. I'll tell you who won't stand courageously in the day of difficulty. Those who make compromises, they won't be ready to stand Doctrinal compromises, or a new word I learned this week by listening to our dear brother, Dr. Lance Quinn, characterological suffering. I heard that word multiple times this week. I didn't even think it was a word. But I wrote it down in my notepad, and it auto-corrected. And so I knew immediately, it is a correct word. Those who compromise in character or those who compromise in doctrine won't be ready to stand firm in the day of testing. Those who want the approval of men won't be ready to stand in the day of testing. Those who give man's wisdom instead of God's wisdom, those who speak their message instead of God's message will not be ready to stand courageously. Those who fear death will not be ready to stand. Because they will be self-absorbed and self-focused, because they will give the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God, and God will not share his glory, they will not be ready to stand courageously. Only those who have privately wrestled their heart to the ground, believed the truth, delighted in the ways of God, are going to be prepared for that day in which God will demonstrate his glory publicly through them as they face persecution. Unbelief and unwillingness to stand on the word of God will lead to fear and compromise in many. No matter, again, no matter how confident you are in the truth, no matter how bold your assessment is of yourself, I can tell you this, where your heart or how your heart responds in the face of suffering tells you where you're at. Not the church you go to, not the morning Bible studies you have, not the prayer times you're having, not the conversations you're having, but under the personal trials you're facing, how your heart is directed in faith, you can get confidence where you're at. That's why the Lord gives suffering. Let me show you this, again, just setting this up from the life of Peter. Peter was this man chosen by God to be a personal disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, called out, and Peter was recognized as, they would say, the kind of voice for all the apostles. It was Peter himself that would speak up regularly for the apostles. It was Peter who was the first to speak out. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. This kind of begins the unfolding of this for us. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they give an answer. And then he turns to them and, and says to them, but in verse 15, who do you say that I am? And of course, you remember Peter just blurts out in the next verse, verse 16, Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Maybe at that point he figured what did I just say? But he knew in his own heart, he had this doctrine in his own heart, and know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Christ 
bless them. Peter was the voice, he was the spokesman, he was a leader among leaders, among the disciples, he was a prominent one, ultimately used by the Lord mightily, even after the Lord's death and resurrection, Peter was used to bless the church. But what's interesting is the start of a series of warnings that Jesus gives Peter. Notice verse 21, from that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus started to tell his disciples, this is what is going to come. Difficulties are coming for me. Persecutions are coming. Turn over to chapter 17. You see this in verses 9 through 12. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Meaning, he told them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Notice verse 12. But I say to you, Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. He's telling his disciples. He's warning them his death is coming. He's warning them, and this would have been, again, unthinkable to them at that moment because they have lived with him, they've walked with him, they heard him teach. They didn't want him to die. And he's telling them, it's coming, I am going to die. Notice verse 22 and verse 23 of chapter 13. And while they were gathered together in Galilee, this is uh, Jesus with all of his disciples, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day. Again, think about this, just from the timeline as Matthew unfolds it here, you go to the height of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus is now privately talking to his disciples, who do you say that I am? I am the Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. From that moment on, he, Jesus is saying, I am going to die. I am going to suffer. I am going to be taken by these religious leaders and I'm going to be led over to my death. Chapter 20, verse 17 through 19, he brings it out again. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him and on the third day he will be raised up. Now he has unfolded the plan. It is going to be both the religious leaders who are going to lead Christ to death and also the Gentiles. Everyone's going to have their hands in this. Christ is going to die. One more time. Turn over to chapter 26. One more time. The Lord makes this known. 26, verse 1 and 2. This is now in the middle of the Passion Week. After Jesus is triumphantly entered, after he has refuted the religious leaders in the temple, and now he comes to this point. 
When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, for a period of time, maybe upwards of a year, he has been preparing them, he has been teaching them, he has been letting them know this difficulty is coming. He has said it over and over again, as I've shown you from these verses. He's told them what's going to happen. He has prepped them for it. What do you think Peter's response was? I heard your message. Lord, I know what's going to happen, right? That's what we would expect. But that is not what he gives. Notice verse 35 of chapter 26. It says in verse 30. You know, in verse 31 and following, start at verse 31. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even if all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Lord, yeah, these guys, yeah, they're weak. They'll fall away. But you don't know me. You don't know my heart. You don't know my courage. I'm prepared. I will never fall away from you. Verse 34, and Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, verse 35, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. There is courage in Peter's part. There is awareness of the difficulties that come, and there was a lot of self-confidence. There is no way that this is going to happen, that I would turn from you, and I would resist you. So what happened? Jump ahead to verse 69. See, in Matthew 26, 69. Now Peter was sitting outside of the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it, and before all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to, the, to those who were with there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it, and with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and to swear, I do not know the man, and immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now here's the point I wanted to draw out in this. Unbelief in the word of God will lead to inability and or unwillingness to stand in the day of testing. Unbelief in the word of God will lead to fear and compromise in the heart. 
It wasn't as if Jesus didn't tell them the day was coming. It wasn't as if Jesus didn't say this is exactly what's going to happen. And in fact, he warned him. And even when Peter heard it, he says that he denied it. He rejected it. No way. You don't understand. You don't know my courage for you, my love for you. You don't know how I'm willing to die for you. You don't understand the personal sacrifices I'm willing to make for you. And it's in that moment, the moment of this testing, Peter, recognized, Peter, his heart was revealed that he was filled with unbelief. He wasn't believing the Lord's message. He wasn't believing what God had prepared him for up for that moment. And I want you to, again, I want to put this thought on your mind before we see the second half of this chapter in regards to, you see the sufferings of Peter. God uniquely prepared Peter for what was to come next. But I want this thought on your mind. The courage to stand in the face of public suffering comes through a faith-filled life. The ability to stand, the ability to be strong in the midst of difficulty comes from a faith-filled life a faith-filled life that is first tested in private suffering. I'm going to have the public life of confession, the public life of standing boldly. It's going to start from the private life of personal suffering and enduring through that personal suffering. started last Sunday with laying out a series of statements, suffering is. And I gave you kind of six statements of suffering is. Well, this Sunday is the final one. Suffering is private and public. It was private before God and is demonstrated publicly in persecution. And it is to Peter that we want to turn our attention because Peter learned a particular lesson. And turn over to the book of First Peter there's so much in the book of 1 Peter that we could look at. In fact, we could have just limited the whole conference just to the book of 1 Peter and covered suffering in all these different ways because Peter's just the theme of suffering flows throughout. Peter, in this particular book, particularly we'll look at verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 this morning. In this book, Peter gives us the courage to stand. The courage to be able to stand between multitudes to proclaim the greatness of God and His work. And He's going to show us throughout this work how we're able to stand in the public testimony by starting in the private wrestling. When we have denied ourselves, when we have taken every thought captive privately, when we are resisting the flesh, when we are mortifying the flesh, when we're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh, when we're resisting the devil, when we're standing firm in the faith, when we're hungering for the Word of God like newborn babies, when we're praying and fasting and meditating and delighting in the truth, when we're actively serving others, when we're walking in the Spirit, all all privately, we are ready for the public stand to give proclamation to the riches of God's work. It's in these moments when we are at the work of suffering for righteousness in our private pursuits 
that we are preparing ourselves if the Lord should, in his good wisdom, decide to publicly put his work on display in our life. In fact, chapter 4 starts with all that. 4, 1 through 11, he starts with all the private, private wrestlings. Saying here in 4, 1 through 11, that we are to be putting aside the deeds of the flesh. It says that, notice verse 1, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And he goes on and he talks about all the deeds we're put off and the, and the rejection we receive by our old friends because we have left those things. Speaks about the public releasing those things. And quickly, I'm out of time. So we're going to move on to verse 12 through 19 so we can actually get to our points here. Peter draws our attention. This is where I want to get us to the public stand. Notice what Peter says in verse 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. I mean, I think about these verses in light of the personal difficulties that Peter faced walking with the Lord Jesus Christ when he was saying, this is not going to happen to you, Lord. And in fact, if you went back to Matthew chapter 16 and Jesus made known what was going to happen, it was Peter who rebuked Christ, forbid it, Lord, that's never going to happen to you. We're not going to let it happen. Lord rebukes Peter It was in the midst of that, that Peter now coming and writing these words writes with a greater depth in regards to saying, get prepared. Prepare yourself. That's what he says there. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Galvanize your heart. Be prepared for this. Sufferings and difficulties will come. This whole book, book, as I said, the book of 1 Peter is about suffering. Those who are distressed from various trials. Every chapter is filled with some measure of suffering and difficulty. And Peter is writing, telling his audience, be prepared for this. It's the emphasis of the entire book is to emphasize preparation for personal suffering. Peter, particularly in this point, drawing attention, says to them, we, you, ought to be prepared for the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised at it. That word surprised, translated here, New American surprised, is a very unique word because if you looked up at its other references, it speaks to having a house guest come to your house. Jesus, somebody referring to a guest coming over and staying, someone who would drop in. This would be a unique kind of uh, word in this day and age. Our day and age, if we're going to come visit, we'll send you an email, send you a text, you know, even jump on Airbnb. We'll do something to let you know we're coming into town. This day and age, news and didn't travel such that all of a sudden a guest who's going to stay with you, first you hear of it is the knock, the door. Which for the guys is no big deal, but for every gal in this room, that is a terrifying thought. 
Because at that moment, you're thinking, do I have enough food? Who am I going to have to displace in the house? Is my house even clean? And so the guest stays outside for an extra hour as the things get ready. The terrifying expectation that a house guest is going to be staying for some amount of time is that. You shouldn't be surprised that you have friends who love you and who want to come see you. You shouldn't be surprised that they're going to show up. You just don't know when it's going to happen. And that's the same idea about suffering. We shouldn't be surprised. Shouldn't be caught off guard by it. We, we expect this to happen because the, we stand for righteousness. We're not surprised that this fiery ordeal among you, just like you're not surprised as a house guest who unannounced comes and visits. It's an appropriate kind of warning here. Do not, do not be taken off guard. And again, I read that in light of what Peter must have been thinking about all the warnings that Jesus gave to him, telling him what was going to happen. An event that for him, he would look back on probably with despair. Why was I so weak in that moment? Even as the text indicated, in I think maybe the New American Standard uh, just drives in the wedge a little bit. It's a servant girl he came to you, Peter. It was a girl, a servant girl. You know, it wasn't like a, a skilled soldier, a Roman soldier came to you and asked you to give an account. It was a servant girl who came to you, and you couldn't stand for the servant girl. Why? Because you weren't prepared for it. You weren't galvanizing your heart and being ready for that difficulty when the difficulty came because you didn't believe the message. You didn't believe that what Jesus was saying was true. You didn't believe that this was ultimately going to happen to you. And you even thought maybe you could fix it. Maybe you could stop it. As you said, I will die for you, Lord. I'm not going to let this happen. Forbid it, Lord. Maybe even in Matthew chapter 26, 35, when Peter was saying, I will die for you. He was thinking back to the events he said in chapter 16, Lord, forbid it. This isn't going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen. Sometimes we get like that in our own heart when it comes to difficulties and comes to pressures. We think we can change the events. So when they come upon us, we're a bit surprised that something outside of us is moving and we have no power to stop it. Do not be surprised at this fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as he says, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It is not creeping in. It is coming. And he says, the encouragement, and this is the encouragement for the whole section, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. You may be exceedingly rejoicing. He says, face this difficulty with rejoicing, because when he comes in his glory, you're going to be exceedingly rejoicing at that point. Now here's the question that came up in our, uh, our panel discussion yesterday, and it was this very question, how can I keep rejoicing how can I be rejoicing when I'm facing something difficult when this pressure is overwhelming? Well, Peter gives then four conditional statements. Four statements here, four reasons or things that we can be thinking about. And I'll quickly move through them because I only have a couple minutes left. But we will look at these four 
points. And each are conditional statements. Each of these things are, if this happens, if you're reviled, here's what you need to think about. He gives us four things we ought to be thinking about. Peter gives us these four reasons to rejoice in our suffering, these four truths that we should be preaching to ourselves when we face persecution, and they are these truths. The first is this, the reviled are blessed. And the second truth is that the believer is unashamed. And the third truth is that the wicked will give an account. And the fourth truth is the faithfulness of God is our strength. And I'll walk through these quickly in our remaining moments. The first truth, when we are facing that difficulty and we're tempted to be despairing and not rejoicing, the first truth we remind ourselves of this is that the reviled are blessed. Notice verse 14 and 15. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. The first truth, when we are standing for righteousness and we're walking on God's ways, the first truth is that the reviled are blessed. To be reviled is to be ridiculed, it is to be mocked, it is to be misrepresented, it is for somebody to take your words and twist them and corrupt them so as to change your message. The one who is to insert upon you false motives, false ideas, to put evil upon you so as to discredit you. You see this all the time. People are hostile to the truth, opposed to the truth, try to ridicule somebody who's speaking the truth so as to silence them, discredit them, to cause them some kind of emotional affliction so they would back off. They're reviled. All who have ever proclaimed the word of God has faced this in some way. If they've been faithful to the ministry of the truth, they have faced reviling. Stunning to me, just thinking historically about the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. In his early years, he was so ridiculed by fellow preachers and even by the newspapers that every Sunday or Monday after he preached, they would give a review in the paper, and in the review of the paper, they would ridicule him. This young guy who was preaching in a way that was different than everyone else. This man who they just even described his preaching as pulpit buffoonery. Well, who's still speaking today? It would be Charles Spurgeon who's still speaking today. The rest have gone silent because why? Spurgeon preached the truth. Regularly ministered the word of God Those in his day spoke of Spurgeon and said of Spurgeon that his his pulpit was a prostitution of the pulpit. For Peter for Spurgeon to be in the pulpit was a prostitution of the pulpit. Reviling. Taking the the man of God and trying to bring him low so as to discredit the message and drive him out. Peter says here in first Peter four fourteen. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. There is something in the moment when you are doing the Lord's work and your heart is inclined to recognize we are proclaiming God's message. We're proclaiming God's gospel, not our own gospel. His message, not our own message. We're trusting in His truth, not our own. 
then whatever ridicule comes, we're fine with it because of this principle right here. Those who are reviled are blessed. Like if I spoke my own wisdom and my own ideas and he ridiculed me, fine, I deserved it. But if I'm unfolding God's message and it's God's truth and there's ridicule, well, I rejoice in the promises of God. I haven't given myself. I've given you the Lord's message. There comes a reviling, a difficulty, an insult, a verbal abuse, a mocking and attacking when you're standing on the truth. And maybe this comes when you're sharing with a loved one. Maybe this comes when you're sharing with a neighbor. Maybe this comes with a coworker. Or maybe you have the opportunity to publicly stand and proclaim, and the reviling comes. Whenever it happens, your first confident joy is this. That is a blessed. You are blessed for that. Blessed, enriched by God, protected by God. They're going to speak evil of you and they're going to twist your words and they're going to draw false implications and they're going to try to misrepresent you and they're going to try to paint you in a negative light and they're going to try to discredit you because they have to because your message brings accountability. And so when we're in the midst of that and we're facing despair and the evil, the temptation of our heart is, well, I just want them to like me. I just want them to be happy of the message I gave. Instead of looking to longing to have a relationship, our hope is in the blessing of God. God rewards. God will deliver his servants. God will measure our words. We just want to be faithful. I want to be faithful to minister the truth in love. I want to be faithful to minister the truth in a compelling way, in a clear way. I want to be faithful to minister the truth. And then I look to God for his evaluation. That's what causes the heart to rejoice in the face of suffering for righteousness is because we look to God as the one who gives the assessment. And we know that in his assessment is this. Those who minister the truth will be blessed. Those who speak the truth will be blessed. The second principle is this. The believer is unashamed. It says that in verse 16 through 17a, that if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this time. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Second truth we recognize when we're heading into difficulty is that the believer is unashamed. Yeah, so we're facing some little difficulties now. I have no reason to be ashamed. Anything that, anything that was in my life, anything that should have brought shame or difficulty has been covered by Christ. He has covered all my sins, past, present, future And now the members of my body are slaves of righteousness, where before they used to be slaves of unrighteousness. Now they're given over as slaves of righteousness. I've given myself over. I have no reason to be ashamed. I live with a clean conscience. I live with a heart that is given to God. I live knowing all my transgressions are covered, and so I have no reason to be ashamed. Not a meddler, I'm not a thief, not an evildoer. I'm not one who's walking in unrighteousness. Not one who is living for this world. I am one actually who is now living for Christ. Particularly verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, because of the uniqueness of what you believe, because of what you practice, or what you follow in, 
because of your life. Glorify God in this name. Glorify God in that identity, he says, because judgment begins with the household of God. Meaning that we're facing a little bit of difficulty now because this is by God's design. This isn't the final judgment, but this is a taste of the final judgment, a lesser degree of the kind of judgment to come. Our personal suffering is of lesser degree of what is to come in eternity for those who've rejected Christ. So you receive Christ. Remember, you have nothing to be ashamed of. That's important, particularly in this day and age that wants to ridicule and wants to shame you, especially in we're hearing more and more this kind of opposition that says that we are the problem because we're not honoring their love, the kind of corrupt love that goes against God's design. If we won't go, come and give approval, they want to discredit us in some way. That's not the case. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We walk according to God's design. And the sweetness of the fruit of that comes out in our lives. Christian is unashamed and therefore we rejoice. Thirdly, the wicked will give an account. We rejoice and we continue to rejoice because we know the wicked will give an account. Notice 17b through 18 says, And if it, that is judgment, begins with us first, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and of the sinner? We know this. Whenever difficulty we're facing, we don't have to stand up and defend ourselves. We don't have to go look for our pound of flesh. We don't have to go look for vindication. We know it's coming. The wicked will give an account. Everyone will have to give an account. Just a reminder of that, your present suffering for righteousness is an indication that the future suffering for unrighteousness is coming. Future difficulty is coming, and so we can quiet our hearts right now when we're looking for that vindication, knowing that a public affliction uh, that we may experience for righteousness is a small thing in comparison to the eternal weight of suffering for the one who is in rebellion to God. I can rejoice now in small affliction. I mean, even as the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this is momentary light affliction. It's small. In light of eternity, it's a short thing. This personal suffering for righteousness. And facing, when you face that personal suffering for righteousness, just quiet your heart with this thought. At least it's not eternal. Because that's what the other side is facing. The wicked who reject the gospel, who reject the grace of God, who reject the mercy of God, who reject the ways of God, the man who stands his own self-will, his own self-desires, the one who opposes Christ will stand under an eternal weight of suffering because he's rejected the Lord of glory, the Savior. And then lastly, Peter brings out, why do we rejoice in the midst of our suffering? Because the faithfulness of God is our strength. Notice verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I love these words. 
You notice what he's saying here is suffering according to the will of God. There is not a single stroke of suffering that is outside of the good and sovereign control of God. There's not one personal tear shed because we face difficulty that God hasn't directed and orchestrated and moved for our good purpose. Paul saying to the Romans in Romans 8 and verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our good God is moving and directing in all of these difficulties according to his will And we are in the midst as he is sovereignly unfolding these things, as we are yielding in faith to the truth, and as we are proclaiming his message, and we are walking in his ways, and as we are guarding the path of righteousness, and as we are delighting in that very path, we recognize then we are just entrusting our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I don't care what the cost is, I just want to do what's right. Whatever the difficulties, whatever the costs, whatever the personal sacrifices, just desire to do what is right so that the heart would rejoice in God. I love that perspective Peter had learned. So that in the face of his difficulties, he can overwhelmingly rejoice. He can rejoice in his own heart because the reviled are blessed and he can rejoice in his own heart because the believer is unashamed and he can rejoice in his heart because he knows the wicked will have to give an account and he can rejoice in his heart because God's faithfulness is our strength. He has promised and he will deliver so our faith can be strong. I pray that these truths comfort your heart but will be at work privately so you're growing in your own private life and ready to stand whenever he is ready to call you into public account. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Father, what amazing truth from your word. And even to hear from Peter himself, the one who has faced difficulties and suffering and even where he would look back in shame and say he had failed You've been patient and you delivered him and rescued him and brought him to yourself and demonstrated the riches of your glories in him. You restored him and now this faithful shepherd of the church, this faithful apostle can minister to us and encourage us. May we learn from his experiences that we would be bold and strong and may we take all of these truths that we've learned this weekend and see a faith that grows and is transformed, stands strong so that we would not be concerned about ourselves, but we would be concerned about you and your glory because we want to put Christ on display for it's this lovely Savior who to us has become our great delight and hope and anticipation. And we just pray that there would be an increasing love for Christ in our hearts and lives that would be manifested. Even in the midst of our suffering, we would be able to turn back to Christ and be comforted by his words and his example and that we would be fading out of the picture and he would be increasing all the more. So take these truths, these lessons we've learned throughout this weekend and use them to be the 
feeder of our souls and the strengthening of our faith. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.